Now, I don't know if you were, uh, if you were listening to that reading, but if you were, I suspect it might have caught your attention. Would that be right? Uh, a little bit harder today to immediately go, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, perhaps, yes? All right. Today we have a, a brilliant passage before us. It's going to, it's going to be a uh, pretty full-on sermon, I think, because of the nature of the material in front of us. Actually, at the back, um, Joy and Stace, there's um, A4 paper just right at the back there. Can I get you to pass it around? I think today will be a day I'm going to talk about stuff that's related to our eternal life, to heaven and hell. And it won't happen all the time. So you might be thinking to yourself, gracious, I came to church today and this is what I got. Um, I want to encourage you, we're only speaking about this today because it's the text that's the next part of the passage that we're doing. I'm not apologising for doing that, but I am telling you, today we're talking about it because it's what Paul wanted to write to the Thessalonians about. And I think today you might hear for the first time about some things that maybe we don't talk about very much in church. So I want to give you the opportunity, if you would like to take some notes, to do so. And uh, I'm going to pray for us that God would be merciful and that he would help us to understand what it is that he's saying to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this chance to turn our attention to these words. I pray, Father, you would make our hearts soft, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, convicting and comforting in right measure. And we ask this, Father, so that Jesus would be honoured in all of our lives. And pray that in his name. Amen. Well, uh, along the lines of the sermon for today, I want to ask you just as a start, how do you feel when things go wrong? How do you feel when things go wrong? Do you feel ripped off? Do you feel disappointed? Do you feel hurt? Do you feel frustrated? How is it that you respond when things go wrong? Now, for some of us, we're thinking almost immediately about little things. Don't cry over spilt milk is the, is the kind of saying, isn't it? So when little things go wrong, just get over it is the kind of conventional wisdom. Paul's writing his second letter to the Thessalonians. We've spent the last five weeks looking at the first letter. He's writing a second letter. Why is it that he had to write a second letter? Did he not get it out in the first one? Well, since the first letter has been written, a period of time has transpired. No one knows exactly how long, but let's say several months have transpired. In between when Paul first wrote and the second thing, this is what's happened. There's been an increase in persecution. In other words, people who were standing firm for Jesus have been continually under the pump. It has been unpopular. It has been unfaithful to the gods of the local people. It has been the sort of thing that will get you excluded from your family and kicked out from your local club. If you're on Jesus' team, you have continued to be persecuted in Thessalonica. Secondly, Paul had written to them about the great return of Jesus. Do you remember we heard that a couple of weeks ago? The great return of Jesus. And here's what's happened since he last wrote his last letter. The return of Jesus has been delayed. So maybe the Thessalonians were thinking, hey, we can hang in there for another, more, another few more weeks until we're caught up to be with Jesus in the air. We can hang out for a little bit longer. And it's been a little bit longer. And now we're starting to worry a little bit. Did Jesus lose our address? Can't he see that we're suffering here? Doesn't he know we're under the pump? Doesn't he get that we're hanging on by our fingernails? 
And so there's an uncertainty around the church to say, hey, Jesus, have you forgotten us? Persecution is continuing. Your return is delayed. And so Paul writes a second letter to them. Have a listen to his beautiful opening here. Please open the Bible if you can to 1 Thessalonians, oh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1. In uh, verses 1 and 2 he says, Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he write to them? Have a look at these beautiful words. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he want for them? Grace, the free gift of God, and peace, settled calm, trusting hearts. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful greeting to an unsettled church. So that's how he starts off. What does a church like the Thessalonians need? I'm going to suggest today they need three things. They need three things from their founding pastor, from from Paul. Uh, They need affirmation. They need to be told, hey, you're doing all right. They need encouragement. Keep going And they need grounds for confidence. So we're going to look at those three things today. Affirmation, encouragement, and confidence. Well, let's start with this one. Apart from the fact it's just a beautiful picture, I was was teaching scripture this week at uh, the public school over here. And uh, the classroom is called New Zealand. They have all the classes named after countries. So I was in New Zealand this week. And uh, there the teacher said... um, Oh, he said, one, of the, one of the girls came up and, uh, and the teacher said, no, no, go and tell Mr. Star. And this is a girl who doesn't do scripture. So in scripture, we have a whiteboard and I draw all over it to help the kids kind of get, it's my secret thing. I would preach with a whiteboard, but I don't think it would work. But in scripture, it's fantastic. So I just draw stuff all over the place. Anyway, this kid came up, not part of the scripture class, and she said, Mr. Star, Mr. Star, I think your drawings are really great. I said, oh, that's brilliant. I hope you read the words that are with them, but that's great. I'm, I'm really encouraged. And, she, and the teacher said, we're teaching our kids this week to be bucket fillers. He said, don't empty people's buckets out. Don't drag them down. Find words that you can speak into people's lives that will fill them up. And uh, I heard what she said, and I wanted her to be a bucket filler for you. Isn't that beautiful? And, uh, and so bucket filling... This is exactly what Paul does to the church in Thessalonia in verses 3 to 4. Have a look with me. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. Notice how close he is to them. Not you people I once visited and left alone. No, no, no. Brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love of all all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. Isn't this brilliant? So Paul says, actually, I'm writing to you. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to affirm you. I'm going to say something beautiful and encouraging. I'm going to fill your bucket. See, in Thessalonica, this is amazing. In Thessalonica, persecution has grown faith. The faith you have is increasing. In Thessalonica, in this little city in Greece, in Thessalonica, persecution is growing brotherly love. And so Paul looks at a church under the pump and he says, do you know what? Something incredible is happening here. Faith is growing and brotherly love is growing. You are more a family today than you were yesterday. It's pretty good, isn't it? And so he speaks that out to them. I think the question becomes, well, how does persecution do this exactly? Why would those things increase with persecution? Here's four thoughts I had on that. 
First of all, in a church that's persecuted, there's no place for Sunday Christians, right? So if you know today that if you're at church, you go on a government register and that there are some people in the police department who would look that register up and might hassle you and harass you, pull you over on your way to work, would you be here next week? What about if they had some unregistered thugs who would come and stand over your kids while they walked to school? See, in persecution, there's no place for people who are just Sunday Christians. No one is nominally coming up to warm a pew in a persecuted church. Secondly, they held on to God alone. So when you say, I, don't, I won't have all the gods of Rome and Greece, you have turned to the one Lord Jesus Christ and you are clinging on to him because you've turned away from what your family has always taught you. Does that feel dangerous? Does that feel like you're right out there? Absolutely. So you will cling to Jesus. Thirdly, I'm going to love anyone who wants to be in church with me, given that, right? So if you're going to stand next to me with that persecution, with that risk, if you're going to stand next to me, I'm going to say, you are my brother. You are my sister. So brotherly love increases because you're daring to stand with us. Fourthly, it's amazing. Paul boasts about, wow, I'm really wrapped. The numbers are going up and the quality of your music is rocking um, I think you're about ready to release an album and some of your speakers are going to go on a tour and maybe get their own YouTube channel. It's just going to be spectacular. Not what he says. He doesn't celebrate their success. He says, in the midst of suffering, you are standing firm. It's brilliant. It's an amazing picture of a church growing under persecution. And I think that's how it happens. Paul then says, I think, one of the most cryptic verses in this thing. Have a look with me at verse 5. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. In what way is all of this evidence that God's judgment is right? It, it's hard to work out exactly what he's saying here. How is all of this, this increasing faith, this brotherly love, proof that God's judgment is right. I was thinking about toothpick bridges. Um, I've never made one, but I love the idea, right? So take this tiny little thing and some engineering genius and turn it into a model of another bridge. Or even better, let's take that to the next level. Let's take it to a bridge-making contest. No one else is as excited as I am, I can tell. Okay, so here's a bridge-making contest. So what they've done here, they've got spaghetti, see up the top, and they've used super glue, and they've turned it into a bridge, and then can you see there's a thing hanging down? Can you see that? And so they're adding weight to their bridge, and the person who wins the competition is the one whose bridge holds the most weight. You with me? Now, have a look at the face of the, the kids underneath this bridge. Oh, it's holding. It's holding. They are rejoicing in its ability to stand up under the load, right up until this happens. <laughs> Okay, here's the thing. I think what it's saying is God's judgment is proved right when the church stands up under pressure. So God looked at his church and he said, Church, I reckon I've made you in such a way that you can bear the weight of this persecution. And then he's looking at it and he's going, Do you know what? You're standing. You're still standing. All this is proof 
that God's judgment is right. He was enabled, he enabled you to bear up under the load. He trusted you with the weight of this and you held firm. And so I think we need to see here, first of all, that standing firm is God's work in you. So why will God's judgment be proved right? Well, he will help you to stand. He's the one who strengthens you to keep trusting Jesus. And so when he looks at it and goes, I helped you to stand and you're standing. See, the glory of the bridge is it's standing. And so the bridge maker looks at it and goes, I love that bridge because it's able to bear the load. And I think that's what God does. It proves that he is right. So standing is God's work. Your standing is God's vindication. The fact that you still stand says God was right. He was right to trust you with this persecution. You have stood firm. And so God is shown to be a great bridge builder, church builder in this case, because you're still standing. So that's the first thing, affirmation. The next section is written to help them stand. It's written to help them keep being that bridge, bearing the weight. And uh, I think we need to know that. You might need to write down, it's encouraged, to, it's written to help them stand. Because when I read these neck bits, you're going to just forget about that entirely, and you're going to have all sorts of other questions. But I want to tell you before we get to it, it's written to help the church stand. It's written to help the church stand. Let me read it to you, verses 6 to 10. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Did you get distracted? Let's have a look. Now, what I want to say to you today is uh, these things, I think it's fair to say, these are some of the strongest statements that you'll find in the New Testament on this topic. They certainly sound scary enough, don't they? Are you with me, church? Yes, they do. So let's have a look. I want, I want to break it out and say, what is this part of the Bible teaching us? If we didn't have this, we might miss these things. So what is it saying very clearly to us this morning? Firstly, God is just. Okay, have a look at it there on the page in front of you. You can see it there in verse 6. Uh, God is just. If you've got your own Bible there, you might want to underline that. Uh, if you've got our Bible, you might want to not underline that, but you can. Uh, someone else will find it later. I think everything that you know about God is going to get pushed a little bit as we go through this. How does it start? It starts with this incredible affirmation. God is just. Not God is just hanging out. God is just. He will do justly. He will do rightly. He will not be compromised. He is not bribable. He will always judge correctly. God is just. And he's not just just occasionally. God is just always. You can rely on this part of God's character to always be true. It is inherent in who he is to be just. 
So the first thing you can know for sure is no one will get ripped off from this point on, right? No one will be mistakenly misallocated. There's no bureaucracy that's going to bog down. There's no miscarriage of justice. What you are going to hear from now is God is just. Always. Secondly, we're going to see that God is boss. God is boss. Now that sounds a little bit simple, doesn't it? It means that there is no greater power or authority. There is no greater power or authority. Uh, In Psalm 2, which was read for us uh, earlier, in Psalm 2, we read, uh, He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. And it says in verse 4, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Who does he scoff at? The kings and the rulers of this world who think they're the most powerful people. There is a God who is over any power and authority in this world. Whatever communist regime, whatever regime of power and oppression, whatever um, ISIS-controlled state exists, there is a God who is higher, more powerful, and one day he will show himself to be the unequaled, unopposable boss of all. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, what he's saying is not just a little bit of encouragement for us, he's saying he is the absolute top, the absolute authority, he will never be able to be defeated. When it comes to judgment, we don't meet God. I had this appalling conversation with a lady one day, and she said, I can't wait to meet God. I'm going to kick his. And this lady was deeply hurt and she was deeply angry. And I don't want to invalidate how hurt she was. But she thought she would meet God as a peer and she would, she would punish him. She would set right the wrongs that were done to her. None of us will meet God as a peer. We'll meet him as our creator and as our judge. Unopposable unopposable. God is the boss. Number three. Number three. The faithful will be vindicated. Do you know what vindication is? Vindication is being proved right. Who doesn't love that? Come on. Who doesn't love that? Don't we love that? You you go out and say, I think this is going to happen, and then it happens, and you just quietly go, yeah. I knew that was going to happen. That little joy of being proved right. Or maybe it's a really big thing. Maybe it's a huge, risky decision you took in your work world and you said, I believe this is the path. I'm going to go down this way. And it came off. And you just sit there and you just go, I feel this wonderful, strange warmth inside me. That joy, that's vindication. And it will pale into insignificance compared to this. Because one day, you and I, who have stood for Jesus, who might have been mocked by our families, who might have been made fun of at work, in your social groups, who may have lost people they love, who've walked away from them because of your faith in Jesus, one day you'll be vindicated. It will be shown that what you were hanging on to was of ultimate worth. The faithful will be vindicated, not today perhaps, but it will happen. This is what Jesus says at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. He says this, 
He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the water of life without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. There's a day coming when the Lord Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, will stand there and say, you're mine. You were right. And that will be a day of deep joy for the people of God. We read in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, these amazing, amazing verse, uh, verses in verse 23 and 24. May, the, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify, cleanse you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the encouragement. Ready? Verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You will stand. You will be vindicated because he will help you stand. That should be encouraging. It says there that he will bring relief to you who are troubled. But secondly, he says he will bring trouble to those who trouble you. We need to hear today that the enemies of God, the enemies of his church, will be punished. Have a look at, uh, at verse 8 and verse 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. They are not trifling words, are they? They are not trifling words. The enemies will be punished. You, they, they can think today that they are unopposable. They can think that they have the power. And... and, and Brothers and sisters, despicable things are happening in the world to people who follow Jesus today. And I, I, won't, I won't make church a horror show for you, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't help, I don't think, for me to speak macabrely about what happens. But when, you know, when, when ISIS at the moment lines Christians up and slits their throats, that despicable horror will not go unpunished. Those beautiful people who trusted Jesus to the final day of their lives will be vindicated. It will not go unpunished. The Lord Jesus sees. Enemies will be punished. God sees what is done on earth to his people and he doesn't miss a thing. Not in underground concrete bunkers where people are tortured for Jesus. Not in families where no one else for kilometers and kilometers around believes except this one person. God never misses a thing. He would judge justly and he will pay back those who do wrong. He doesn't miss a thing. It says here that this punishment will last forever. It's a, it's a truly terrifying thing, isn't it? Jesus actually, uh, actually says... Some similar words. Have a look at verses 8 and 9 here. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Jesus uses this everlasting language himself. He says in Matthew, 5, 20, uh, Matthew 25, He says, They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Elsewhere in Mark 9, Jesus says, It is better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Brothers and sisters, I don't tell you this because I take any delight in it. I tell you because they're, they're the words of Jesus. And why does he tell us? 
For the same reason you'll tell your children, don't touch the oven because it's hot. You will burn yourself. You will get burnt. Don't touch it. Why would I tell you that? You say, well, don't scare the children. There is a helpful fear, isn't there? Don't go here. It's got nothing to do with wanting anyone to touch it. It's precisely the opposite. I will speak of what will happen that you might not. Notice what is at stake. Eternity without change is at stake. And I want to say this today. You will come to no good. What that means is what the picture of the end is. If you take God out... If he says, I will turn away from you, depart from me, I never knew you, is what Jesus says. If you take God out, then all the goodness is gone. And so the people who say that they'll have a party in hell with their mates are profoundly wrong. Because mates are good, there'll be no mateship. Because parties are good, there'll be no party. Because caring for others is good, because there'll be no caring for others. There will only be selfish annihilation. Anyone who thinks they'll party in hell has goodness in hell and God will withdraw his goodness. You will find no good there. And it will truly be hell. This punishment, the reason that this is so horrible is because this punishment shuts you out from God. It says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out, verse 9, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Moving away from God's glory will be the worst that can happen to you. See, the picture in in 1 Corinthians 13, the picture that we're longing for is one day we'll see face to face. Now as Christians, we see as through a mirror darkly. That's what it says. We only see God in part, right? The day we're longing for is the day when we'll see God face to face when all of our joys will be removed, when all sin will fall away with all the encumbrances of our body, it will just fall away and I'll see God and I'll know even as I'm known. On that day, gloriously, we will enjoy his presence forever. What he's saying here is the opposite of that full joyous relationship is God taking away his goodness from you. And so it'll be just like the Garden of Eden lost. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve? Doubt God's goodness, and their punishment is to die, and they are to die outside the garden. They are shut out from eternal life and from the presence of the Lord. That's the essence of judgment, to be shut out from the goodness and the presence of the Lord. That day is coming. That day is coming. When will it happen? Well, it says here it will happen, uh, verse Verse 7, it says, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Uh, Church, can I just have your attention for a second? Uh, Some of us grew up with pictures of Jesus, and I literally, I I had a Sunday school room. You've probably heard me say this before. I had a Sunday school room with Jesus with the Californian surfer hair, you know, all brushed, and, and he literally was holding a lamb. Okay? And so he's a white Californian surfer holding a lamb, somewhat strangely. And he has this kind of erratic, peaceful smile on his face. And that was the picture, Sunday school picture that I grew up with. And so is that Jesus ever going to be angry with me? No, he's too busy holding lambs. 
How lovely. Let the children come to me. And he wants the children and he will be loving and kind and he will welcome you. But we cannot exclude this picture of Jesus. On that day, what, what will it look like? It's, if, you're, if, you, if you've seen enough movies, haven't you, with special effects, right? Get, get this picture clear. Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And do you think any human being is going to be able to say, oh, excuse me, Jesus, I wasn't really very interested in you, and I want you to understand I thought I did a pretty good job of my life. I think you should let me into heaven. Is that going to cut it? Church, it's not going to cut it, is it? There will be full, flat on the face, humility before the great and awesome coming of the Lord. That, that's all we'll be able to do. It says in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why does it say that? Not because everyone will suddenly get wise, but because it will be irresistibly true. I don't even want to say these words. My mouth just speaks, you are the Lord. That's what will happen. We'll fall down before the awesomeness of his majesty. That, that day, that day is coming. When, when is it coming? Do you, do you remember our, our story? We've, we've got this, this Old Testament picture, this New Testament picture. We have the present age extending until the return of Jesus. We have Jesus coming and bringing the age to come. We're kind of here before the return of Jesus. And we are living in this time before Jesus' return, which is called the overlap of the ages. We are waiting for Jesus' return. In this time, we will suffer persecution. In this time, we will suffer temptation until the day when Jesus returns in fire with his heavenly angels. That day is coming. That day is coming. Well, I, I want to do a little bit of a check-in with you. How does this make us feel? Because I've just gone kind of pretty full on there, haven't I? How does this make us feel? Think about God. Let's think about God. If I hear this, do I want to just ignore it and stick with a loving God? So let's cross this out of our Bibles. I just want to stick with a loving God. I like the God I had before I heard this sermon. Alternatively, some of you might be so damaged by what you've heard today, you might just say, I don't even, I don't even think I can believe God's good anymore. If that's what he's going to do, how about this one? When it comes to justice, I like justice. I want God to bring justice on ISIS as soon as he can. But I never think about my own rebellion. God, bring your justice to everyone else except for me. Or some of us would go, actually, I don't want any justice, God. If, if that's what your justice is about, I don't want any of it. But as soon as we do that, we forget his honor. If God's never going to pay back wrong to those who do wrong, everyone gets away with it. They dishonor their creator. Maybe when it comes to thinking about the future, you're worried about two people, I think. You're worried about someone you love. So you hear this and you think, oh my goodness, I know people who don't know Jesus yet. Secondly, and I want to believe that there are people here today right now, you're actually worrying for yourself. Remember what Luther said? He said he thought he was a Christian. But under closer examination, he realized he wasn't. Some of you here today are thinking, I don't know for sure. I'm not 100% sure. What does this passage tell us in this way? Well, we find out that God is good and his justice makes him good. God is good and his justice makes him good. Because he will hold the guilty to account. 
Secondly, when it comes to justice, we learn that sin is grievous. So God is going to seriously punish those who are sinful. Sin is grievous, and God is glorious. And I want to tell you today, we actually want justice. I don't want to live in a world where people get away with stuff. I want to know that the scales will be set right. I want to know that wrong will be repaid. I want justice. That's not fair is the childhood heart cry, isn't it? In this universe, it will be fair. What about the future? Here's what I want to tell you. This is the good news. Jesus is the answer to your fears. Jesus is the answer to your fears. Your fears for others and your fears for yourself. See, because punishment isn't the final word. This isn't the final word. Here's where it's found. This is where the final word was found, here on the cross. On the cross, we see God's justice. Sin will be punished. On the cross, we see God's mercy. Sinful people will be forgiven. How? Because God lays my sin on his son, Jesus. He dies in my place, that my sin might not be paid for by me, but is paid for by his son, Jesus. Isn't that brilliant? That's our hope. God's justice is held firm. His mercy and his incredible love for us is lived out. God's justice and mercy are held together in the person of his son. God bears the weight of his justice. Praise God. And Paul knew this personally, didn't he? Do you remember Paul's story? What had he been doing before he became a Christian? Someone tell me. Persecuting the church. Paul had been throwing Christians in jail. He had been one of the enemies of God. And God met him and he fell face down on the ground. Do you remember that? He's in the dirt. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. God saved him. The worst of sinners, Paul calls himself. And God saved him and forgave him and gave him a new message. You take this hope to all the world. So Paul, Paul is not writing to say to anyone, so sucked in, you're going to be judged. He's writing to say, you have heard the most brilliant message in the world. Stand firm if you're a Christian. And if you're not yet, get right with the God who has done everything that you might be saved. The job of the, uh, the Australian Army is to kick you out if you're a soldier. They'll give you everything that you need to be a soldier. It's their job. So don't just say, you're a soldier if you'd like to go and buy a gun, find something khaki-coloured that'd be helpful, and we're heading off. It's the job of the Army to equip you. It costs them about $37,000 to kit out each soldier. When God calls you to his kingdom, he kits you out. Have a Listen. Have a listen to the way that this passage finishes in, uh, in verses 11 to 12. For this, is the, uh, for this reason, uh, God gives them a powerful delusion. So, that, uh, No, I'm in the wrong place. Oh, in chapter 2, that's the reason. With this in mind, I'm looking on the other side and I'm like, wow, that's scary. God isn't doing that. Have a look at 2.11 if you want to get confused. Um, 1.11 says this, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Whose job is it? It's God's job. That God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's power 
is for your good and God's power is for his glory. He is going to equip you to stand firm until that final day. And uh, guys, I'm, I, I just need to say this today. What if you're not ready? What if you were here today and you're thinking, goodness gracious me, I'm not ready to meet Jesus on the day he returns? I want to remind you, whether we're ready or not, the day is coming. The day is coming. And there won't be any way to sidestep it. It's coming. What I want to encourage you today, and I need to say it as clearly as possible, I need to encourage you today to repent. Turn away from your sin and come back to God. I need to tell you to ask for forgiveness from Jesus. He's paid the price. And I want you to ask for him to be your king. And thirdly, I want to encourage you, if you're already a Christian, I want to encourage you to walk in his ways and his strength to do them. Keep following in his ways. Stand firm. Be a worthy bridge under the weight that God has put on you. Don't be afraid. Be ready to marvel at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He'll come. I want you to be ready with me to look into the heavens and say, Jesus, you're marvelous. Have a look at these words here. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. I'm going to pray today and I want to give you an opportunity. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. We're going to say, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross. We're going to say, sorry for our sins. And we're going to say, please forgive us and come into our life as king. For those of you who have known him and love him, I'm going to pray that God would give you the strength to be worthy to keep running this race to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you immeasurable thanks for your son's death. Father, your justice and your mercy are satisfied there. We thank you for Jesus. Father, we are sorry for our sins. We know that they put us in huge jeopardy before you until we turn from them. So, Father, help us to turn from them today. Father, we're sorry that we've grieved you and we've hurt others. Please forgive us. Heavenly Father, forgive us and come into our hearts as King. Father, not as Sunday Christians, but as people who are sold out, longing for your return. Heavenly Father, for everyone here who's already made that decision, I pray you would make them worthy. Be at work strengthening, equipping, and encouraging their hearts. Father, so that every one of us might stand together with many more that you will add and look to the skies and see the marvelous return of your Son. We pray this longing for that day and in deep trust in Jesus' name. Amen.